When I recorded a podcast on Shakespeare's Sonnet 135, I didn't expect it to become our most played episode to date. I would suggest that something in the Bard's nether regions had stirred an unhealthy fixation, if I hadn't been the one to record the episode. I may have underestimated the appeal of Shakespeare's junk, but he did not. Knowing he'd leave you hanging, he wrote a sequel. The episode that follows is decidedly not child-friendly, but the previous one is. Kiora and welcome to Requisite Words. I'm Peter Ravlich, and you're listening to a podcast about poetry. Shakespeare's Junk is our most played episode by a wide margin. I would hope that's because of the accessible path into the sonnet form it offers. But given that this is the internet, and that the poem is one overextended dick joke, a pun most definitely intended, I suspect it's simpler than that. It's a remarkably entertaining poem. Which brings us to the big question. Can he pull it off again? A quick content warning before we wade back into Shakespeare's chafier regions. I'm going to be speaking tongue-in-cheek about this sonnet, in the same way Shakespeare's speaker approaches the subject matter. It's another light, humorous, and pretty filthy piece, and contains implications that could be construed as slut-shaming in a more modern context. Those opinions, obviously, are not mine, and my admiration for the sonnet's construction and the joke do not advocate such a regressive attitude to sexuality. And neither, given the precise ambiguity of this particular piece, should such attitudes be assumed wholesale in the speaker or the poet. In the world of the Shakespearean sonnet, the ground can shift under you at any moment. Everything is playing with inference and assumption and everything is quite likely upside down. I'm also going to break a cardinal rule, and conflate Shakespeare with the speaker. In part because he chose to name the speaker Will, and in part because it's funnier to consider these poems from that perspective. I'd ask you to keep in mind that this assignment is still not autobiographical, and that the Will Shakespeare who's speaking is still a deliberate, fictitious creation of the Will Shakespeare behind the quill. To recap where we were back in episode 7, Sonnet 135 left us with an unimpeachable argument for screwing Shakespeare, which used classical dialectic logic. Given the assumption that you've screwed everyone else, you might as well screw me too. Strangely, it appears that this logical approach did not convince the Dark Lady to shower him with her affection, because he then wrote Sonnet 136. How then does a genius poet respond when their crass appeal to the subject's promiscuity somehow fails? He obviously draws directly on the most seductive of professions, accountancy and then doubles down on the previous argument, but with data to back it up. Sonnet 136 by William Shakespeare If thy soul check thee, that I come so near, swear to thy blind soul 
that I was thy will. And will, thy soul knows, is admitted there. Thus far for love, my love suit sweet fulfill. Will, will fulfill the treasure of thy love. I fill it full with wills, and my will one. In things of great receipt, with ease we prove, among a number, one is reckoned none. Then in the number let me pass untold, though in thy store's account I one must be. For nothing hold me, so it please thee hold that nothing me, a something sweet to thee. Make but my name thy love, and love that still, and then thou lovest me, for my name is Will. If we consider the position and context of this sonnet in Shakespeare's sequence, then this first quatrain is a bit of cheeky misdirection. It posits the foundational assumption of the piece, but it also rolls back the tone of Sonnet 135. You have a conscience, a soul, it begins, although it does qualify that with an if. If thy soul check thee that I come so near. If you're worried that I'm getting physical, quash your conscience by an appeal to faith and free will. This second line operates on several levels and adds new assumptions, if admittedly well-established ones. The soul is blind, we are told. But hang on a second. Isn't it love that's blind? Now we, we could tease out a possible allusion to Psyche here, who we incidentally discussed in episode 16. She's unable to look upon her lover, who is himself the personification of love, Cupid. But that's a bit of a tenuous thesis when it is Cupid himself who is more often depicted as blind. It's possible that Shakespeare is pulling in another allusion here, because layered figures are a common feature of his sonnets. So please let me know if I've overlooked another obvious case for the soul being blind to educated 16th century society. But it isn't a central question either way, but a part of the factual framework on which the poem's arguments are constructed. And we aren't given any chance to argue or unpack, which is also commonly seen in classical dialectic. He establishes the premise, the soul is blind, and moves on to the next thread of the argument. So, given that it's blind, you can tell it anything. So tell it that I am your will. This is delightfully ambiguous. It makes the obvious Christian reference to the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done, which lends nonsensical authority to the argument. Tell your soul, your conscience if you will, that this is your will, that this is God's will, that this is what you want, that this is your free choice, that this is aligned with your soul itself. The ambiguity is underscored in the following line. And will thy soul knows. Is admitted there. Free will, specifically, is admitted within the domain of conscience. But this is a deliberate obfuscation of actual doctrine. Will is admitted, but it should be God's will, 
which is aligned with conscience by being aligned to the good. By conflating the term will, Shakespeare is forcing a binary choice here. All the meanings of will, lumped together, will operate with the same mechanic on this logical system. Take them all, or reject them all. This framing permits no middle ground. And this concept of all wills could be seen as metaphorical foreshadowing, given what's to come. But admitted where? Will might be admitted into your soul, but it isn't her soul he wants to penetrate. The question is neatly sidestepped. There means there, and it's all the same. Will, soul, as we've just seen, you can wrap a multitude of concepts into something as flexible as a word. Thus far for love, my love suit, sweet, fulfill. We've got more potent ambiguity. Thus far, are you following my argument? Here's what I've proved so far. Thus far, let me show you how close I can get. Or say, how far in? Thus far. Far enough for love. Just the tip? Sorry, I digress. Thus far is also a wrapping up of the precursors to this argument, and presumes agreement. The line might be rewritten. QED, so let's make love. In case you had been lulled into reading this as a serious poem, he then reawakens all the bawdy silliness of Sonnet 135. Will, will fulfill the treasure of thy love. He's saying that will, in the sense of volition, uh, let's reiterate, because it might matter later, is an appropriate, even a borderline religious justification for sex. So you've got the rationale for lovemaking, right? Great! Then why limit that decision? I fill it full with wills, and my will one. Fuck everyone! It's the only logical extrapolation of this entirely logical argument. Okay, even the speaker can hear how ridiculous this sounds. She may not buy this. Time for argument number two. Bring in the accountants. In things of great receipt, with ease we prove. Among a number, one is reckoned none. We're talking fundamentals of bookkeeping here, people. No educated person could disagree with that statement, right? A single number diminishes in importance when we reach very large numbers. Capiche? Capiche. Panties down. In that case, bear with me. Then in the number, let me pass untold. You won't even know I'm there. Though in thy store's account, I one must be. But I will be there. For nothing hold me, so it please thee hold. That nothing me, a something sweet to thee. Nothing is another one of those lovely terms that's packed with meaning. Or in this case, packed with wills. Because deriving from naught, both in the patriarchal absence of something, and in the vaguely oval outline, you can see where this is going. Naught and nothing are highly problematic, but contemporaneous, references to the vagina. So, nothing hold me can again be read in several ways. 
see me as nothing, as we've just argued, but also hold me literally in your nothing. Hold me inside you. In this manner, it will give you pleasure, both to hold me there and know that morally there's no problem, because I'm still nothing too. Nothing to see here, just your vagina being your vagina. But we end the quatrain with a colon, sweeping us into the final couplet before you can dwell on the literal implications of nested vaginas. Make but my name thy love, and love that still, and then thou lovest me, for my name is Will. The speaker is walking back his own words. Let me break it down for you again, because it's simpler than this whole mounting argument, which got a little bogged down right around the orgy. You only have to love my name, and only my name. And then you do love me, will love me, must love me, because my name is Will. It's another conflation exactly like we had earlier. There, it was God's volition, her volition, his volition, her vagina and his penis, all lumped in together. But now, it's simpler still. All of these things are contained and irrevocably wrought together in his name. They're already inseparable. So this is the discussion-ending argument. Notice that the iambic pentameter is broken in the final line of the couplet, which is a technique frequently seen in Shakespeare's sonnets, and softens and emphasizes the final argument by drawing it out of the rhythm scheme. Ignore everything else I've said. Just love me. And by itself, it might be a lovely, quirky plea. But it only exists in context and is offered as a clear contrast to the arguments above it. It's written almost as a moment of clarity for the speaker. I've just realised something. Of course you could go and sleep with everyone in town, work up a really tight schedule of round-the-clock screwing, until the numbers stack up, and I've made that case pretty strongly. Or, you could be every bit as authentic to yourself, and to the natural order, if you just have sex with me, because I just realized that my name is the solution to the obtuse riddle of conscience that I created. What are the chances? Shall we? So there you have it. Shakespeare's junk, the second coming. I'll note here that Shakespeare's sonnets are followed by a lover's complaint, which deals with the aftermath of giving in to just such arguments as those contained in sonnets 135 and 136. So again, try not to judge the poet too harshly in the light of his speaker. That said, to wrap the sequel and conclusion of ruminations on Shakespeare's downstairs, I'd like to share another sonnet, one I wrote for a recent competition, while reflecting on sonnets 135 and 136. It's called, From the Dark Lady. I cannot quite decide which fate is worse. To have you make presumption of my sin. Or bear your masochistic little verse. 
ostensibly to worm your way within. Were I to lesser station given birth, perhaps I'd deign rejoinder to your wit, with puerile intimations of your worth. How short, how thin, however will it fit? But rest assured, I'm flattered by your rhyme. Propriety, you see, requires grace. So should we meet at some unwitting time, that isn't raw contempt upon my face. I will, you might have plucked a willing rose, had less been on the page, and more inside your hose. Requisite Words is an Inklings production. Find out more at inklings.co.nz or follow us on Twitter at Requisite Words. Opening music is Be Chillin' by Alexander Nakarada. If you enjoy listening, don't forget to give us a review on your favourite podcast app and let us know what you'd like to hear more of. <laughs>